Coming up next on Contemplate. Well, we say we can know things, and one of the ways that we know things is because they're revealed to us in Scripture. Big claim. The question is, is there any evidence or reason to believe that that is true? Welcome to Contemplate, a Bible teaching ministry of Acts Church featuring Pastor David Robinson. Have you ever wondered if the Bible is true? How do we know? And how did they decide which books would be in there anyway? Couldn't there be some mix-ups? Let's find out. Here's Pastor David. Today, we're going to talk about the reliability of Scripture, whether or not we can trust this book. Okay, like I said, we believe this is true. Now, you, if you're, um, you know, have, have, this is your first time, or you've grown up in the Northwest, you of course know that Scripture is nonsense, right? It can't be true. It's an old book. It's got all kinds of mistakes. You all have read the Da Vinci Code. So we know, right? The Bible can't be true. Um, you know, it's this book with a bunch of rules. It was made up to kind of scare people and so the church could oppress people and get their money. You know, that's, that's kind of what the Bible's about. Um, and, and, you know, it's so outdated. It's so old school. It's like God's still using dial-up. You know, it, it, he's, he's out of touch. He's out of touch with the rest of us. But we don't believe that to be true. And, I, and we're going to talk today about whether or not those things are true. But those are some of the things that have been leveled at the Bible. It's out of date. It's inconsistent. We don't know that we have the right books, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, remember that we talked about epistemology in the last a couple weeks ago. Um, we've talked about epistemology, which is the study or the theory of knowledge. How do we know things? What do we know? Very important thing for you to understand when we talk about the Christian worldview is that this is part of our epistemology. We believe that there's reliable and authoritative information in the Bible that we can take as knowledge, that we can know things through this book. Now, that's a big claim. Remember, the naturalist said we can only know things through science. Postmodernism said we can't know anything. Well, we say we can know things, and one of the ways that we know things is because they're revealed to us in Scripture. Big claim the question is, is there any evidence or reason to believe that that is true? Is there any evidence or reason to believe that what's written in the Bible is actually true or reliable? Well, let's, let's look at that. Um, here are the problems most commonly brought up as far as, as far as the Bible is concerned. The first one is called transmission. Transmission. Transmission has to do with copying the text. So at some point in some place, there were men who wrote down the words in the Bible, right? They would have written them down on a papyrus or, or some other paper-like form. They would have written them all down. The question of transmission is, are the words that those men wrote down the same words that we have in the Bible now? Or is there a problem in the transmission of what they wrote to what we have. That's the first big issue. The second one, not as big of an issue, but it's an issue for some people, is translation. Taking a text from one language 
and putting it in another language? Or was there a problem? Is there a problem with the translation of the Bible from those original documents? What's happened? Are we, are we translated correctly from those original languages to English today? And the last one, uh, the last one is called canonization. Canonization means which books were chosen, which writings were chosen to be in the Bible. Did somebody choose those writings? How did they choose them? Which ones were chosen? So we're going to talk about all of these things today. We're going to start with transmission. The skeptic will ask, how do we know that the text of the Bible is the same text that was originally written down? How do we know that? They say, isn't it kind of like a game of telephone? You guys remember that game when you were kids? You'd whisper in the one person's ear something, and then they'd whisper it in the next person's ear, and they'd whisper it in the next person's ear, and so on and so forth. You'd say something like, your grape jelly is abominable. But by the time it got back to you, it was, your Aunt Nellie is a water buffalo, right? It, 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 it got messed up in the trans, if it even was that close. Oftentimes it was like way out there. Because it's very difficult when whispering in ears to transmit something across. So people say, isn't that what happened with the Bible? I mean, isn't that really what went on? Because here's the problem, straight up. We do not have any of the original documents that made up the New Testament of the Bible. We only have copies. We don't have any of the original documents. Okay, so this could be a problem. We're trying to figure out whether what we have in here is consistent with what was written down on those original documents. A fair thing to bring up. A fair thing to bring up, so let's talk about it. Um, we have a process. Historians have a process for figuring out what was in an original text. It's called textual criticism. And let me give you an example of how it works, okay? So I got this, or I sort of changed this from an article I read. Let's say that I had a dream. And I had this dream about something called chocolate love cake. And the recipe came to me in my dream. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Um, so I wake up and I write down the recipe. All right, go back to sleep. The next day, I get up, I take my recipe, and I, and I follow it, and I make this chocolate love cake, and it's the most amazing thing in the world. And when I wake up from my chocolate-induced coma, I decide that I am going to pass this recipe on to other people. So I take the original recipe, and I set it right here. And then I take some pieces of paper, and I write the recipe down ten times. Ten times because I have ten friends. I write down ten times, okay? Now... I tell those people, this stuff is great. They try it. They all write it down 10 times, and et cetera, and et cetera. Okay? Same recipe. Started with the original one I wrote when I woke up from my dream. Now we have a bunch of copies that have been written down. But here's the problem. My dog ate the recipe. Ate my original. I don't, have, I don't know how to make chocolate love cake anymore. So I call each of my 10 friends, and guess what? Their dog ate the recipe too. So now, we got to find out why our dogs are so weird. And we got to find out where these other copies that were written are. So we go after those copies, those second, those third generation and beyond copies. And we grab what we can, and we come up with, let's say, 27 copies. Okay? I find these copies. These are not the one. It's not my original. It's not the first copy I wrote. It's at least the second generation from, from those people on or more. And I get these 27 copies, and I set them down. Now, 
In one of those copies, they have the order of the operation different. They say mix the eggs first instead of mix the flour first. And in one of those copies, there's a new ingredient that we don't see in the other copies. And in one of the copies, there's an ingredient that was left out that we see in all the other copies. One of them had the cooking time as 10 minutes longer, and another one had the temperature as 100 degrees hotter to cook. Now, can I ever hope in this situation to recover the original text that I wrote? Textual criticism says yes. What I do is I find these outliers, the ones that have something added that only one has and everybody else doesn't have that, clearly we can say that wasn't there. The one that omits something, but all the other ones have it, we can say that wasn't there. The one that's got a different temperature, but all the other ones don't have that. Or the one, right, that says there's an ingredient, whatever it is, whatever the thing is, we can find the aberrant documents and move them out. And find between the ones that are left, we can triangulate what was there in the original text, okay? We can see which ones were done earlier versus which ones were done later. The earlier ones are more likely to be accurate. The later ones are less likely to be accurate. This all makes sense, right? This is what we have to do, okay? And this, by the way, is what's done with all ancient documents. All ancient documents that come from the period when the Bible was written are done this way because we have no copies of any of them, okay? Plato, Aristotle, Pliny the Younger, Josephus, Caesar, Right, All of these people that wrote things down, we don't have any of their stuff. Homer, the guy who wrote the Odyssey, you probably had to read that in school. None of these, nobody's got the original Odyssey. Not even close, okay? But we believe we have the accurate text of the Odyssey. We believe we have Plato's text accurately. We believe we have Aristotle's text accurately. Why? Because of this method, textual criticism. It just makes sense. It's like forensic science. We figure it out by having... A certain number of, of copies and a certain distance in time from the time the original was written. That's how we do it. Okay. So when we're looking at textual crit- criticism, we have two questions. How many copies do we have? How many copies do we have of the document? And how far in time are those copies removed from the original document? So if I wrote my original recipe and it was actually 10 years before my dog ate it, and the earliest copy I can find is five years old as it's passed down, you know, and I, and I find 20 of them, and I have 20 copies, the youngest of those copies being five years older than the original. So we know how to, how to do it from there. Okay, so let me, let me read you a quote. Aristotle says this, According to the poet, oh, I'm sorry, accordingly, the poet should prefer probable impossibilities to improbable possibilities. Now, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. It's just a quote from Aristotle, and I'm bringing it up for a certain reason. We believe that that's an accurate quote, that that's what Aristotle wrote. Okay? Textual criticism is how we believe that. Historians, scholars believe that it's accurate because they've used textual criticism. So how do they use it? In this case, for the works of Aristotle, we have 49 copies. Okay? Now, the earliest copy that we have is about 1,400 years after Aristotle wrote, okay? So 1,400 years later, we have 49 copies, and we feel pretty darn confident that we got the works of Aristotle correct, okay? Here's some others. Here's some others. The works of Pliny, 
The earliest copy we have is 750 years. We have seven copies. Plato, 1,200 years from the time he wrote. We have seven copies. Thucydides, I know you guys have been reading him. 1,300 years, eight copies. Euripides, 1,300 years, nine copies. Aristophanes, 1,200 years, 10 copies. Caesar, 1,000 years, 10 copies. And Tacitus, 1,000 years, 20 copies. Okay, here's the best example we have from ancient, ancient, uh, the ancient world. Homer's Iliad. We have one that's only 500 years. The earliest one's only 500 years from when he wrote. And we have 643 copies. Now listen, we feel very, very confident that we have the accurate text from these people. Historians are not freaking out over this. Oh, I don't really know if we have Aristotle's work. I don't really know if we have Homer's work. They're confident. They've used textual criticism. They've used the process that we just talked about. They feel like they've got it down. The question is, is the New Testament of the Bible accurate like that? Well, let's look at the numbers. The earliest copy we have of the New Testament is 100 years, less than 100 years after the original was written. And we have 5,300 copies. Okay? I'm sorry. We have 5,300 copies in Greek. Okay? In Greek. We have 10,000 copies in Latin and 9,300 copies in other languages. We have a total of 24,000 copies of the New Testament. Remember who second place was? Homer, 643. He loses. We win, right? The New Testament is so well-attested, it is in fact the most well-attested document in antiquity. The most well-attested document by far. 24,000 copies, the earliest being less than 100 years from the original. And you saw the numbers on these other documents that are considered valid. So when we have a question about transmission, did we get the chocolate love cake recipe right? I feel a whole lot more confident that we got the New Testament right than I would feel that we got Aristotle right. Now, people don't have an issue with that, but people want to bring up issues with the New Testament, with the transmission of the New Testament. Okay? But it's it's just, it is the most well-attested book there is. Most well-attested. But there are variants in the documents. Like I talked about with with the recipe, there was one that added this, one that took away this. There are those kinds of variants, okay? Um, we wouldn't need textual criticism if there were no variants. They all said, all 24,000 said exactly the same thing. We wouldn't need textual criticism. We'd know we had the original. But there is no such document or set of documents in the ancient world where every single one is correct. People were writing these down by hand, okay? You're going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. And so there are, okay? Now, here's the thing. Bart Ehrman... He's a scholar. I think he's in North Carolina. He wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. And in his book, he says that, in fact, there are a huge number of variants, over 400,000 variants in the New Testament books. Uh Uh-oh. He's right, by the way. That's how many variants there are in all these copies. Now, don't let it take the wind out of your sails, because here's the deal. Almost all of them, almost all of them, are spelling errors, inverted words where one word was put before the other one, okay? Skipped lines like they wrote a line of text and then they skipped a line of text and wrote the next one because they were copying badly. Have you ever copied, like made, made to be copy on the blackboard, said the same thing so many times? 
That happened to me a lot. I don't know if it ever happened to you, but, but it did. It skipped a line of text, okay? Other stuff like that, almost all of these variants can be explained that way. Almost all of them. These types of variants do not cause any problem, any problem at all, in the work of reconstructing the original text through textual criticism. Okay? They are the types of things you would expect to find in 24,000 copies of documents. In fact, if you didn't find those types of things, it would be very interesting. It would be very interesting. It would almost be conspiratorial because we always find these kinds of issues. Now, there are a few left, okay? But of the ones that aren't spelling errors and things like that, none of them, none of them affect the interpretation of Scripture as to any core belief, any serious doctrinal issue. None. So we have 400,000 things. Sounds like a big deal. Bart Ehrman wrote a book about it, made some money, went on the talk shows, like, ooh, because people had never heard that before. Well, except those who had studied this issue have known that forever. Solid, Bible-believing Christians who, have, who believe the Bible is inspired word of God have known this for a long time. That's the way it works with ancient documents. But Bart Ehrman made a lot of money bringing this up. But here's the thing. Even Bart Ehrman, the agnostic critic of the New Testament, says this. Okay, The position I argue for in misquoting Jesus does not actually stand at odds with Professor Metzger's position that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. So he writes this whole book about misquoting Jesus and all these variants, and then in the end of the book, this is stuck away. Oh, by the way, <clears throat> they don't really affect anything. Look, the New Testament is over 99% absolutely pure. We're certain. We're certain we have it. In the entire 20,000 lines... There's only 40 lines that are even in doubt at all about whether they're the right thing or not, and none of them affects any significant doctrine. None. Okay? So D.A. Carson, who's a scholar, sums it up like this. He says, What is at stake is purity, is a purity of text of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be doctrinally true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance. In commenting on the evidence for the integrity of the New Testament, Sir Frederick G. Kenyon, who was the director and principal uh, librarian of the British Museum. Okay, so this guy knew what he was talking about. He says this, the, inter the interval then between the dates of original composition and the earliest extant, that means existing, evidence becomes so small as to in fact be negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us at, at substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Okay, There is no debate that's serious about whether or not the New Testament has come to us in essentially the form that it was written down in. Okay, Basically, exactly the form that it was written down in, with a very few little errors, none of which are important to our theology or the way we live out our Christian life. Okay, And we don't know that they're errors. It's just possible. It's possible. Okay. That will take care of transmission for us. Let's move on to translation. Having solved our transmission problem, the Bible is translated. This is an easy one. The Bible is translated from the original manuscripts. 
Okay? We use textual criticism. We triangulate what the original manuscript said. We translate it into English directly from that. We do not translate from that into Latin, then into French, then into Spanish, then into English. Some people try to suggest that there's all these translations and we're translating from a translation. Not true. We're translating from the original, understood original text through textual criticism straight to English. Now you might say to yourself, why are there so many translations then? I have one called the New King James Version. Some of you may have the Old King James Version. Another person might have the NIV or the ESV or the ISV. Right? There's a lot of initials running out there. Why is that? Well, here's the thing. English is a live language. It's not a dead language like Greek. Greek is set. It meant what it meant. English is not. We have words that at one time meant something different than they mean today. Right? We have words that change meaning. And there are words in the Greek language that don't translate perfectly into English, word for word. So you have to come up with um, some English words that describe the meaning of the Greek word. Now, in doing that, different translators have come up with slight variations in the translation. Not meaningful ones. If you read the different texts, you will not find many translation differences that amount to anything. They're substantially the same, but they're slightly different. And as time moves on, sometimes some will update a translation to be in a little bit more modern English. I don't know how many of you talk like the King James talks. Um, you know, I know that's how Jesus talked and everything with his English accent. But that's, uh, that's not the way we talk now. So a translation like the King James Version may not be something that the average person wants to read because they don't understand what it means. Because we don't use those words in that way anymore. That's why there's so many translations. Okay? That's it. That's translation. It's not a problem. For people who would say to you, oh, it's been translated from translations from translations, they don't know what they're talking about. It's not true. We have, so far we've figured out, a properly transmitted text. We're sure that this is what they actually wrote. And a properly translated text. We're sure that the text has been properly translated from the original language into English. Okay? This is some of the reasons why we believe in the reliability of this book. Let's talk about canonization. This one's a little bit more fun. How were the books that made it into the Bible chosen? Was there a conspiracy to include only the books the church wanted so that the church could exercise power over people? Something like that. Let's start with the easy one, the Old Testament, okay? The books of the Old Testament by the time of Christ were already chosen. It's the Jewish Bible. They already had their canon, their group of books. It's the same one that we use today. Jesus said it was scriptural, so we kind of go with that, um, him being somewhat of an authority as God. And he quotes it regularly, and it's quoted regularly in the New Testament. We just don't have an issue. The Old Testament canon was not decided by some church council in order to oppress someone. It's, the, it's not even from there. It's from the, the Jews knew what the canon was in the Old Testament. So I'm not even going to worry about that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. We'll be here all day. Isn't that amazing? So much proof that the Bible is true. And on the next episode, we'll learn about the New Testament, and you won't want to miss it. And if you've enjoyed this teaching, let me invite you to come see us this Sunday morning at Acts Church and hear Pastor David in person. I just know you'll be blessed.
Get directions and all the info you need at axcamus.org or call 360-885-9000. Thanks for listening and be sure and check out the next episode here on Contemplate.